everybody this morning. I want to welcome you uh, to our, our Sunday School Hour. And I get the privilege this morning of teaching an overview of the Gospel of Luke and then preaching, zooming in on a specific passage of Luke in our worship service together. So I'd like to pray and then we'll jump into our, our class this morning. Lord, thanks for these folks who have come here today uh, with the desire to understand your word. Lord, that is such a sign of your grace at work in the hearts of people. Lord, you've given us a desire to know you. You've given us um, a hunger for your word. And maybe we don't even feel that desire super strong this morning, but it's there and it's something that's, that's in our lives. And that's evident that just evidence that you have called us and you have implanted in us your spirit and uh, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I pray that that hunger and that desire would be satisfied this morning, that you would meet with us, that you would uh, feed us with your word. I pray that you would grant us increased understanding of your word so that we can better know you, so that we can better grasp um, just the, the breadth and the depth of your glory and your plan to bring about salvation through your son. So we pray for your help and ask for your blessing on our time together. Amen. Well, if I was to, the answer's kind of been given away already, but if I were to ask you what author do you think penned the largest portion of the New Testament, probably most of you wouldn't say Luke, maybe a few of you would, but most of us would think probably the Apostle Paul was the most prolific author, right? I mean, he wrote Romans and both letters to the Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, both letters to the Thessalonians. Versus 2 Timothy, Titus, um, Philemon, maybe Hebrews, not sure about that, right? But there's a whole bunch of books written by the Apostle Paul. But if you do a word count and add it up, um, just the sheer length, if you count the verses, it's actually Luke who has penned the biggest chunk of the New Testament. The Gospel of Luke, and then the sequel to the book of Luke, which is the book of Acts. If you put those two together, that's a huge chunk of the New Testament. So... We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke today, and wanting to start off just by covering a little bit about the author. Uh, Luke is referred to in Colossians 4.14 as the beloved physician. The beloved physician, and he's a companion of Paul. Uh, Paul knew him, and he mentions him in several of his letters, and we see that Paul traveled with him in the book of Acts. And it's evident that this physician, who was well-loved by many, well-loved by those who, who traveled with him and served with him, Paul, uh, really valued his, his help in the ministry. He was likely also valued by the churches because if you're a doctor or a physician and you show up and there's needs, you probably help with those things. So this, this man is, is someone who was well-loved by many. He was a physician by trade. Uh, he authored both Luke and Acts, and he did so on behalf of a man named Theophilus. If you look at the very beginning of Luke and the very beginning of Acts, you'll see that both of these books were were directed to an individual, to this man named Theophilus. It's a Gentile name, means lover of God. And so Luke is seeking to, to, uh, to equip, to train, to encourage this man named Theophilus. Um, and the reason we're sure that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, even though he doesn't name himself as the author, is both letters are written to Theophilus. The second one refers to the first one as written by the author of the second one. And as you go through the book of Acts, you see this shift throughout Paul's missionary journeys where the author is describing they, 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 and then all of a sudden he switches we, 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 and us. And if you just look at the names that are involved, it becomes clear Luke was there. And he's referred to many times in the book of Acts. And so that, that keys us into the fact that he wrote both of these books. Uh, Luke was not one of the twelve. He is not an apostle. He's not someone that... Jesus personally selected and recruited and then trained 
uh, for those, those several years while he was uh, teaching and training the 12. So he's not one of the 12 disciples, and, and therefore is also not an apostle. He doesn't have that level of, um, of authority. He wasn't personally commissioned by Christ as an apostle, so he's not an apostle. But he does have apostolic credibility because he's a close traveling companion of Paul. You think about Paul as this very um, significant apostle who had a broad ministry, who was recognized both in Jerusalem by the church there and the apostles as, as one of theirs, but also recognized broadly as he traveled. If, if you wrote a book and the apostle Paul says, you should listen to this guy, that's a pretty strong vote of confidence. So the reason that the people have trusted um, his, his writings is not because he's an apostle necessarily, but he does have that apostolic credibility. He has that close association with Paul. He traveled with him, uh, starting on his second missionary journey. Um, a fascinating insight about Luke is that he's a Gentile. He's not a descendant of Abraham. He's not Jewish, which means he's the only Gentile to author a book of the Bible. And again, not just a book of the Bible, but but percentage-wise, the biggest chunk of our New Testament was actually penned by a Gentile. And we see uh, perhaps an influence even coming out in the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, as Luke is always eager to show us that the Gospel is for everyone, not just for the Jews. He has a real heart for outsiders and outcasts, as we'll see. Uh, it's likely that he uh, met Paul and joined in with him when Paul was sent out from the church at Antioch. Paul spent a number of years there serving with Barnabas, and there's uh, early church history references to Luke joining up with Paul, uh, starting at Antioch in Syria. So that's probably where Luke is from, and obviously that's a Gentile, a Gentile setting. Um, Paul lists his companions um, uh, in Scripture, and he says, you know, those who were of the circumcision, and he leaves out Luke. So we have a hint there from Paul's writings that Luke is not Jewish. He was a Gentile, which helps us read and understand some of the unique emphases in Luke's gospel. A little bit about the composition of this. Go ahead and, and open up to Luke chapter 1. We'll look at the first few verses here. But as we mentioned earlier, Luke was written to Theophilus. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So it's written to Theophilus, and specifically Luke is really a research project. Uh, Luke undertook this project. He says he's followed all things closely for some time, and he seeks to write an orderly account. Um, he's compiling, verse 1, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So this is a specific task that Luke undertakes, and because he wasn't an eyewitness, necessarily, of Jesus' ministry, wasn't an eyewitness of the cross, um, he's relying on other sources, uh, probably relying on, on verbal accounts. I mean, he's talking with the Apostle Paul. He, as a traveler with Paul, would have had access to other apostles as well. Paul spent time in, in, um, imprisoned in Caesarea, in fact. Uh, for two years, he was imprisoned in Caesarea. And so, for those two years, as if Luke was staying there close with Paul, he would have had opportunity to not only do, have a lot of time to talk with Paul, but probably also to interact with other people that were there in the region. 
It's interesting, earlier on in Luke's Gospel, he gives us these little comments. One of my favorites is when he's describing um, what's going on with Mary. She learns that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Um, and who that child will be. It says that she pondered all these things in her heart. And you wonder, well, was that written down somewhere? How did he know about that? Maybe he talked to Mary. Maybe he sat down and interviewed her and said, tell me about that. Tell me what happened. How did you find out that you were pregnant? What was that like? And she's telling him, here's what the angel said. And I didn't tell anyone, but I I pondered these things in my heart. You kind of see some of the fingerprints of Luke's research as you read through uh, this book. Um, Luke also has some of the most distinctive material of all the Gospels. Uh, Luke did research. He did reference not only oral accounts, but probably he wrote this book after Matthew and Mark had both been written. It's very likely that during uh, that two-year imprisonment of Paul in Caesarea, or even later during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, um, Mark's Gospel is written to the Romans. It's possible that he looked at Mark's notes, and he included some of the things Mark included. But he wasn't just copying other existing Gospels. He has a lot of unique, distinctive material that makes his contribution very, very valuable. Luke, in fact, is over 50% unique material, meaning that half of what we read in the Gospel of Luke, you won't find in Mark or Matthew. Um, It's unique material, as opposed to Matthew, which is 40% unique. Mark, it's 10% unique. Um, And just because something's repeated doesn't mean it's less valuable. By the way, having three Gospel authors all testify the same thing helps give us what Luke is after. He says, I want you to have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So hearing a testimony from credible witnesses or credible researchers helps us have certainty that these things really did happen. That's a little bit about the composition of Luke. Um, But anytime we read a book of the Bible, it's important that we understand this isn't just like a rolling kind of stream of consciousness thing where somebody's writing down a bunch of random thoughts. There's a purpose and a theme to every book of the Bible. The author's writes with intention. They're trying to teach specific lessons. So the purpose of Luke's gospel is to strengthen the faith of believers by presenting a careful account of Jesus' life and ministry. We see that in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. His aim for Theophilus to strengthen his faith with his careful account also serves us well. It serves us well. What we believe is rooted in historical events. Uh, we're not mystics. We're not people whose religion is founded on myths or, or just private experiences. We believe that something really happened 2,000 years ago. We believe the Son of God was born, that he was laid in a manger, that angels were singing and shepherds showed up, and that John the Baptist told everybody that he's the one and that this Jesus performed all these miracles and he taught all these things, and then he died on the cross and rose again. And and after that, he commissioned his followers to go tell the world about him, and then he ascended into heaven. These are historical realities that we find in Luke's gospel. Uh, The the accounts we find in the New Testament are historical and accurate, and they provide the foundation for our faith. I mean, this is the primary evidence that we come to, is the trustworthiness of these gospel accounts. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it's all true, and it all matters. And so we have these gospel accounts to strengthen our faith by presenting these careful and accurate historical records, not just of what happened, the events of Jesus' life, but also his teachings, also the things that he said, the way he trained his disciples, the truth of God that he revealed to us. So that's the purpose of Luke's gospel, which is similar uh, to the purposes of the other gospels. 
So what's the unique theme of Luke's gospel? The theme is the good news of salvation in Jesus. Good news means gospel. We see this reference to the gospel, reference to good news, preaching of the good news. The whole sermon this morning is going to be about this mission, this responsibility to get this good news out because people need to hear of salvation in Jesus. This message about the kingdom of God is telling people that there's a way for you to be saved through the work of Christ, through faith and repentance. You can enter into the kingdom of God. You can be part of God's program of salvation and his program for the world and for the future. It's good news of salvation in Jesus, who is the Son of Man. This reference to the Son of Man, I believe it's over 40 times in Luke's gospel that Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. That's a key, a key thing we'll talk about later. The good news of salvation in Jesus, the Son of Man, for everyone. Again, Luke is a Gentile, and he labors to show that the gospel isn't just for insiders. It's not just for the Pharisees and the scribes and religious Jews who have always gone to the synagogue. It's for outsiders as well. It's the good news of salvation in Jesus, the Son of Man, for everyone. That's the theme of Luke's gospel. Um, Every book not only has a theme and a purpose, but also has a structure. Uh, We'll just look at a brief outline of the book as a whole. Um, In the first three chapters, we find the entrance of the Son of Man. You have the prophecies, uh, the announcements of Jesus' birth. Uh, first coming to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, telling them that they're going to have a son, and that son will be the forerunner. He'll prepare the way for the Messiah. Uh, We find the announcements to uh, Mary about the birth of her son. We find this record of Jesus's birth um, and what took place there in Bethlehem. We find the ministry of John the Baptist as he announces that the Son of Man is about to come on the stage. We have Jesus's baptism as he's anointed and commissioned and then even tested prior to entering into his ministry. So the first three chapters really focuses on Jesus coming onto the scene, the entrance of the Son of Man. The second section would be the ministry of the Son of Man. Uh, Chapters 4 through 9, we find a lot of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and the surrounding regions. As he is uh, traveling, as he is teaching, as he's calling disciples, uh, as he is performing signs that illustrate that he's the Son of Man. Signs that illustrate that he comes to bring salvation for everyone. So Jesus is traveling and teaching uh, through, through the region of Judea there and Galilee in chapters 4 through 9. But then following that comes a very large section of the book, the biggest chunk, which is chapters 10 through 19. And this is a unique feature of Luke's gospel. It is this journey towards Jerusalem. And there's a turning point here. If you want to flip to um, chapter 9, and we covered this a few weeks ago. But at the end of chapter 9 towards the end of chapter 9 and verse 51, we find what's really a hinge point in the book of Luke. It's like everything leads up to this, and then at this point, everything flows from this directly to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Following this point, Jesus is making a beeline for Jerusalem which means conflict with religious leaders, which will result in betrayal, which will result in arrest, which will, which will result in his ultimate crucifixion, his redemptive work on the cross. So this journey to Jerusalem, chapters 10 through 19, there's a lot of teaching, and there's even a few more miracles that happen, but there's momentum at this point. Jesus is going somewhere. He's headed somewhere. He has a mission. His face is set. His jaw is set. He is making a beeline for the cross. So this takes up a a very very large portion of Luke's gospel when you compare it to the other uh, synoptic gospels. When you compare it to the book of Mark, there's only one chapter in Mark 
that traces his journey to Jerusalem. Um, it, there's two chapters in the book of Matthew that trace this journey to Jerusalem. And then we have chapters 10 through 19 in Luke's gospel. So Luke is, is very focused on sort of this missional aspect of Jesus is heading towards the cross. So the, the whole flow of Luke's book really takes us to Jerusalem, which makes it really fascinating when you compare Luke to Acts. Luke t- is, is everything flowing towards Jerusalem. And then in the book of Acts, we have everything flowing away from Jerusalem. You have, you have um, the, the apostles taking the gospel to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost ends of the earth. You have this missionary impulse as they carry the good news of what Jesus has done away from Jerusalem. So when you put these two books together, you see everything driving towards the cross, driving towards Jerusalem, and then everything flowing from the cross, flowing away from Jerusalem. So when we see Luke's authorship of both gospels, it, you see the, the beauty and the wisdom that, that goes into in God's divine wisdom that goes into compiling scripture for us. Not just a bunch of random thoughts kind of stitched together. Not just random stories stitched together. There is definitely a structure to what's going on here. Uh, the fourth section in Luke's gospel would be the Son of Man in Jerusalem, chapters 19 through 21. Uh, we see Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, him cleansing the temple. We have more conflict with the religious leaders that takes place right there at ground zero at the temple. They are going back and forth, asking questions, challenging him. He's teaching, warning, uh, explaining. So we have the Son of Man in Jerusalem, chapters 19 through 21, which leads up to really the climactic um, moment in Luke's gospel, the passion of the Son of Man. Chapters 22 and 23, we find the Last Supper, Christ's betrayal, uh, that really gripping scene in Gethsemane as Jesus is wrestling and praying the night before uh, his death. We find his arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the burial, all taking place in chapters 22 through 23. This is everything that Jesus has been talking about and leading up to. We get to really what's the center of, of all of the Gospels. All of the Gospels really could be described as extended passion narratives. They're all the story, not of everything Jesus said and did, not of his whole life. We know very little about his childhood. The Gospels are specifically stories about Jesus' journey to the cross and what he accomplished there. So that's, that's the, really the climactic portion of this book. But it's not the end of the story. In the last Uh, chapters, we have the resurrection of the Son of Man. Chapter 24, we see Jesus rising from the dead, and we see the scene at the tomb. There's multiple appearances of Jesus. Um, Luke actually gives us the fullest account of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances. Uh, When we read Matthew and, and Mark and John, some of them don't even tell us anything about after the resurrection. Mark, in fact, ends his gospel with these two ladies leaving the tomb, and they're completely overwhelmed. They're even afraid. What is going on here? And Mark just sort of ends it there. He doesn't tell us about any of the the post-resurrection appearances, but Luke does. Luke gives us a lot of insight into what happens. Uh, Multiple appearances of the Messiah. Uh, Luke gives sort of a a form of the Great Commission, recording Jesus explaining that repentance and forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed um, in the world. And then we find the story of Jesus' ascension. And Luke is the only gospel author to tell us about that scene where Jesus actually ascends into heaven. So Luke gives us some very unique um, and essential information in his gospel. And that's a little bit of the flow, somewhat of the structure um, for Luke's gospel. So if you are reading through and studying Luke on your own, it's helpful to sort of know where you're at. 
Um, I have a son who's learning to drive. He's almost 16. And anytime we drive anywhere, I'm always asking him, so do you know what road this is? Do you know how you would get to Walmart from here? Do you know how you'd get to the highway from here? And he's like, he doesn't always know those things. So I'm trying to help him get a sense of the lay of the land. That way he doesn't get lost when he's driving around, right? Sometimes when we read the Bible, we get a little lost because we don't know where we are. We don't know what's going on. So, So trying to study and understand the structure of a book whether you get that from a class like this or from a study Bible or something like that, it can be very, very helpful. That's one of the things we want to provide through this class. So let's move on and talk about some of the unique features in Luke's gospel. We mentioned there's a lot of unique material, and there's also unique emphases. And one of those it would be, I think, the, the poems and the songs that we find uh, early on in Luke's gospel. When you go through those birth narratives, we find five of these. Um, you find Mary breaking into song, praising God. We find Zechariah, when his tongue is loosed, he, he was made mute um, after he received a vision in the temple about his elderly wife uh, giving birth. He wasn't so sure about that. And God said, I'll, I'll give you a sign that will make you sure about that. And as soon as his son is born and he writes, his name is going to be called John, God opens his mouth and he instantly bursts out in praise. He sings. It's this poetic, it's like a New Testament psalm. Uh, we find it with the angels. When the angels appear Um, to the shepherds in the field, right? We sing this often at Christmas. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill among those with whom he is well pleased. We find the old man Simeon in the temple when they bring the infant child to be dedicated at the temple. Simeon breaks out in song. He's bursting forth with poetic verse. So Luke has all of these songs, these poems that are a unique feature of his gospel. The second unique feature of Luke's gospel would be the elevated role of women, um, Luke emphasizes this. There's 43 references to women and the role of women in the gospel of Luke as compared to Matthew and Mark combined would be 39. And it's not that Matthew and Mark are minimizing women. It's not that they're like misogynist or something like that. It's just that Luke is taking special pains to show what all of them knew and agreed with, that Jesus actually elevates the role and the importance of women. This would have been radically countercultural in the first century. Uh, that Jesus would teach women, that he would call women to follow him as disciples, that he would consider them his friends, that he would engage with them, that he would minister to them, because many rabbis kept a very safe distance from women. So we find the, the role uh, of women very elevated in Luke's gospel. Again, as a Gentile, as an outsider, he wants to show that Jesus, his kingdom is inclusive in the sense that anyone who repents and believes is welcomed into his family and into his kingdom. Luke also has a strong emphasis on prayer. He emphasizes the prayer life of Jesus. More than the other gospels, Luke is always telling us about how Jesus prays, how he gets away to pray, how he spends all night alone on the mountain in prayer. And this really shows us the humanity of Jesus. That yes, he is God. Yes, he is eternal. Yes, he is you know, the, the Messiah, the King of Kings. But he was also human. He was a child. He was born and laid in a manger. He was dedicated at the temple. He got hungry. He got tired. And you know what? He prayed. He prayed. Luke emphasizes the prayer life of Jesus. Luke also uniquely draws our attention to the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, Some people have even called Luke, uh, combined with Acts, you know, the gospel of the Holy Spirit because we see so much of the Holy Spirit's presence in ministry. And that's an emphasis that starts in Luke that only grows in the book of Acts. It's almost as if Luke knows what's going to happen in Acts. He knows he's about to be writing about Pentecost and about, about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on, 
on not just a few unique prophets, but on everyone who believes in the gospel. And he's already setting the table, showing the the expanding ministry of the Holy Spirit, even showing Jesus doing his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of attention given to the Holy Spirit and an emphasis on that in the book of Luke. And then a a final unique feature that I'd like to draw our attention to is um, the parables. And all of the gospels uh, include some of these parables, but Luke does it the most. In fact, there's 17 parables in Luke that are only found in Luke. And some of the ones that are perhaps the most famous and familiar, the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of the prodigal son, some of these parables that we hold near and dear, parables that have shaped our faith and shaped our understanding of what the gospel is and who Jesus is and and who we are, those stories are so powerful and impactful. And Luke records many of them for us. And many of them are found only in his gospel. Let's talk a little bit about the theology of Luke. Because again, Luke is not just telling stories. He's teaching. So what is it that he's teaching? Well, the most important theological emphasis for all four of the Gospels is who is Jesus, right? So Luke emphasizes the person of Christ, specifically that he's the Son of Man. The Son of Man, that title that Jesus uses to refer to himself, is a title that comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's this messianic figure that's divine in nature, but he's also like us in some way. And so Luke brings out both the humanity and the deity of Jesus, as all of the gospel authors do. That this Messiah, this Christ, Jesus is the Christ. He is God and he's one of us. He is human. So Luke really draws attention to Jesus as the son of man. He's the son of man 24 times. I think I said 40 earlier, but that was incorrect. I was thinking of the mentions of women. But 24 times in Luke's gospel, he refers to him as the son of man. He refers to Jesus' divine anointing. He's been anointed, empowered by the Father with the Spirit to do this mission. We see that he has radical humility and generous love. Again, Luke's sensitivity towards outsiders, towards Gentiles. We see Jesus reaching out uh, with humility and generosity. That's who Jesus is. And Luke does a great job of showing that to us. Luke also teaches us a lot about what it means to follow Christ. Uh, We've been emphasizing this over the last few weeks uh, in our Sunday morning sermons with the cost of discipleship, uh, taking up our cross to follow Jesus. We will have to face rejection, but also believing that it's worth it, looking at the promises of grace, the rewards in the kingdom for those who follow Jesus. There's a great emphasis in Luke's gospel on following Christ, living for the kingdom, some of those things. Missional participation, which we'll talk about today. You see this thread throughout Luke's gospel He's building up for the Great Commission. He talks to uh, Peter early on. I think it's in in chapter 4. He says, from now on, you will be catching men, right? He's going to make them fishers of men. He's recruiting people to help with his mission. He sends out the 12 on a special uh, apostolic mission to go and preach in chapter 9. And we'll look at this morning in chapter 10. He sends out 72 others to go out and preach. And then after his resurrection, he's going to tell them that repentance and forgiveness of sins needs to be proclaimed in all the world. So following Christ includes this participation in the mission of Christ. And then obviously the work of Christ. The work of Christ is a key theological emphasis that Jesus came to die and his death meant something. His death accomplished something. And Luke, uh, even more so than some of the other authors, shows us that that Jesus was rejected. Um, If we go back to Isaiah 53, we find that the suffering servant, the Messiah that would come, was going to be despised and rejected by men. And Luke shows us that. It's part of the humility of Christ. He's telling his disciples over and over again, the son of man must be rejected. He goes to a Samaritan village. They reject him. 
He's preaching in his hometown at Nazareth. They reject him. The religious leaders, the establishment, they reject him. Even some of his own disciples, Judas, will reject him. He shows us that this, the work of Christ, his death on the cross, is really marked by this rejection. Um, and it's something that's absolutely necessary. His suffering is not just a tragedy, although it is, um, but it was on purpose, and it was necessary. The Son of Man must be rejected. He must be killed, because this is what brings about our salvation. And, and Luke also brings out, in terms of the work of Christ, that what Jesus does in his rejection, what Jesus does in his death and resurrection is the fulfillment of God's plans. It's the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. We see this especially in Luke chapter 24. Go ahead and flip there. It's one of my favorite passages in Luke. It's one of the reasons I wanted to preach this book, and we'll get there eventually. Not in the next few weeks, but eventually we will get there. Um, I love this scene in Luke. This is after the resurrection of Jesus, and he appears to a few of his disciples as they're traveling on the road uh, towards Emmaus. And he asks them why they're sad, and they say, don't you know what happened? And there's this amazing interaction. And they tell him about the empty tomb, but they still haven't figured out what it means. Look in verse 25. This is Jesus. He's sort of disguised himself. He hasn't revealed his true identity to these two travelers. And he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we see this throughout Luke's gospel with the references to the Old Testament, with the allusions to Old Testament stories and and Old Testament patterns. Even with Jesus um, in Luke chapter 4, standing in the synagogue, he reads from Isaiah and then he puts it away and says, this is being fulfilled today. Like, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy from from the book of Isaiah. So there's this labor to show that the work of Christ is really the fulfillment of God's kingdom promises, his kingdom plans. There's a connection here. And that's very essential because our faith is not only built on the testimony of the Gospels, but also on the promises of the Old Testament. So there's a continuity between what's happening with the work of Christ and everything that God has been doing throughout history before then. I've talked through this already, so I'm going to skip through it. And then finally, the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ would be a theological emphasis in Luke. And this kingdom is, first of all, radically inclusive. It's inclusive in this sense, that all who believe can enter into this kingdom. It's for all kinds of people. Gentiles like Luke and Theophilus. Gentiles like the Roman centurion who are welcomed in. Uh, It's inclusive of people like children. Jesus welcomes little children into his presence. People like women who would have been considered uh, second-class citizens in that day. He welcomes them in. People like the poor. Jesus shows great concern for the poor, for sinners, for even notorious sinners like this woman who had a really bad reputation in town who came in and ministered to Jesus and anointed his feet, and Jesus blesses her. Um, People like lepers who are considered outcasts. Jesus touches them and heals them and brings him in. The kingdom of Christ is radically inclusive in the sense that all who believe are welcome to come. But it's also exclusive. It's exclusive in the sense that it's only those who believe. And we'll see this in Luke's gospel. That there's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, Lazarus is poor. Lazarus is diseased. But Lazarus ends up with Christ in heaven. 
The rich man, on the other hand, who seemed like he had everything together, who was proud, he ends up in hell. It's an exclusive kingdom. It's only those who believe. We see this in the, in the story Jesus tells about the two men who are praying in the temple. There is a Pharisee who says, thank you, God, that I'm not like all the others, these other people. And then there's the tax collector who beats his breast in a sign of great mourning and grief and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus comments, he says, that man went home justified and not the other. It's an exclusive kingdom. It's only for those who humble themselves, who repent and believe. We see it even at the end of Jesus's life. As he hangs on the cross, there's two others on crosses next to him. And one of those thieves on the cross is welcomed into his kingdom. He says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. It's a beautiful display of faith. He says, I believe that even though you're dying, you have a kingdom. That's faith. He says, remember me. That's humility, repentance. He told the other guy, stop mocking this man. We deserve what we're getting. He's broken over his sin. And he simply asks Jesus to save him. He says, will you remember me? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That man is welcomed in but not the other, because he was a scoffer. He did not repent of his sin, and he did not believe that Jesus actually was the Messiah and that he actually was going to receive a kingdom. So this kingdom is radically inclusive for all who believe, but it's exclusive. It's only those who believe. This kingdom is also said to be present in Jesus. There's many different places. Uh, We'll see it in our text today, Luke chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus tells the seventy. Two, he says, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, how can he say the kingdom of God has come near? Because it's present in Jesus. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the one who is able to bring sinners into the kingdom. Jesus is the one who has the power to establish his kingdom. That's what's demonstrated by all of the signs and miracles. So when Jesus is in your midst, it can rightly be said that the kingdom itself has drawn near. So it's present in Jesus, but it's also a future reality. It's a future reality. There's a kingdom that is to come. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, uh, it says in verse 11, as they heard these things, He proceeded to tell a parable. Excuse me. I hate sneezing with these mics because you can't turn away from them. It's not like one of those mics. But Jesus says this in Luke 19. He proceeds to tell this parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And Jesus goes on to tell a parable about a master who gives different financial sums to his servants. He says, go invest that for the future. And Jesus tells this parable Because he's trying to teach his followers that the kingdom is future. There is a kingdom that is coming down the road. And it's at that moment that all of of my promises, all of these anticipations are going to be realized and fulfilled. So yes, the, the kingdom is near. It is present in Jesus. But it's also future. There's a kingdom that is still to come. In Luke chapter 22, verse 16, he's having the last supper with the disciples. And he says, I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, I will not, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's pointing to a future day, a future reality. So this idea of the kingdom in Luke is both near, because Jesus is near, but it's also something that's a future reality. We see this future reality in chapter 22, starting in verse 28. He says to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
He points them to this future day, this future reality, when, when the kingdom will be fully established, when that final stage of the program will be fulfilled. So that's some of the, the key theological emphases in the Gospel of Luke. It's the person of Christ, what it means to follow Christ, the work of Christ, and the kingdom of Christ. Um, I'd like to just close by reading again from the very end of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24. And, and I pray that this is something that's true of us as we study God's word, whether it's the gospel of Luke or whether it's anywhere in scripture. Following this conversation Jesus had with these men on the road, he actually reveals who he is. He's had a meal with them. He blesses and breaks bread, gives it to them. In verse 31, it says that their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did, our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I think as Luke writes his gospel, wanting Theophilus to have certainty, this is more than a purely intellectual certainty. There's a burning in the heart as we see who Jesus actually is, and we understand what it is he's done for us that draws us out to love him, to trust him, to believe in him. So I hope we can say with these two that, that our hearts burn within us when God opens up to us the truth of the scripture. So hopefully this encourages you to dig deep, to keep reading, to keep studying, and to benefit from, from the rich uh, gift that God has given us in his word. Let's pray and we'll be done. Lord, thanks for this time. Thanks for this gospel. We recognize that we needed more than just one. We needed four. And in your perfect wisdom, you gave us these four different testimonies from four different men who write with, with different emphases and unique features, but they all really drive us home to the same point, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, who died on the cross and rose again, and that it's through believing in this truth that we can find salvation, that we can be made right with you. I pray that as we read and study your word, especially the gospels, that we would see Christ, that we would love him, that our hearts would burn within us as we recognize the glory and the goodness of all that you have given us in Christ. I pray that as we come back together in a few minutes for worship, that we would come with this eagerness to learn from Christ, to see who he is, and to participate uh, with him in that mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.